Thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. You to take your Bibles and go with me to 1 John chapter 5. Please, 1 John chapter 5. I want to read the single 13th verse. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Once more, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. When you ask a salesman a simple question, a straightforward question, and they begin to give you the runaround, what's going off in your heart and mind? You ask a straightforward question and they are super evasive super slippery, and maybe they change the subject or use sleight of hand or misdirection. What's going on in your mind? What signals are flaring in your heart? Hopefully some red ones, right? Hopefully you're, you're prepared to just walk away because you know that this guy is trying to manipulate the sale. He's manipulating you. Similarly, This is the reason that misleading data, propaganda, censorship, these are key features behind the harsh rule of a totalitarian government. But the only way that they can maintain control is to control the narrative, right? To avoid honest discussion or transparent dialogue. It's about control. So the lack of transparency and the presence of manipulation for the purpose of control equates to shady salesmen and tyrants but also, my friends, to bad religion. Bad religion. So church elders and leaders who avoid questions like the plague and who impose unbiblical rules on the people of God for the purpose of control, these leaders merit suspicion, for this is not the way of God. My friends, this is not the way of God. We could talk about a number of things here, but specifically I want you to think about the doctrine of eternal security. Many religions, my friends, and even some that profess to be Christian, use eternal security like a carrot. Sort of just dangle it out there in front of people. And the idea is that if you run hard enough, if you do enough, like enough works, compile enough merit, right, keep the rituals, perhaps, you will attain or keep the elusive carrot of salvation, the elusive carrot of eternal security or heaven. So what stands to be gained there? Now, certainly some are genuinely misguided leaders, but others, I think, are are guided by the desire to control, to have that sense of control, because the fear is, that if you just give them the carrot, if you give the people the carrot a la grace, what's there left, 
right? How are we going to get people to stay? How are we going to get people to give? What's left to control their behavior or to motivate good behavior? Now, I would quickly point out that this mindset fails miserably to comprehend the reality of regeneration, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit of God in the heart and life of someone who's truly born again. It also fails to comprehend the nature of a relationship and the nature of love inside that relationship. Opting instead, though, for a man-made system of control by making eternal security a slippery thing, an elusive thing. But my friends, this is not the way of God. Amen? This is not the way of God. For God is not shady. He's not vague. He's not ambiguous. God doesn't use heaven as a tool for manipulation, my friends. We ought to praise him for that. God is trustworthy. He is so good. Amen? God is so good. He's just straight with us. Refreshingly trustworthy and honest and straightforward. One way in which his goodness and trustworthiness is reflected is in this doctrine. In the doctrine of eternal security. He wants you to know, brothers and sisters, that you are saved. He wants you to know, to be confident, to be sure that your eternal destiny is secure. This is wonderful. It's something that we should celebrate and something that has major ramifications for our lives. And John, the Apostle John, couldn't be more clear about it. In fact, John is the perfect choice. It's almost like the Spirit of God knew who to choose to write about this doctrine. Of course, he did, right? John is so straightforward. It's just the way he writes. In fact, you can see it in comparison with the Gospel of John and the letter of John. Uh, he uses propositional statements, these clear purpose statements. See one in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. He just comes right out with, this is why I'm writing, friends. This is, this is why I'm talking to you. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These are written for what purpose? That you may believe, that you may see Jesus for who he really is, that you may understand that he is the Savior of the world, that you and I are all sinners, but this one, the Son of God, he came to set you free. He came to redeem you from your lost condition and to adopt you into his family. This is why, John says, this is why I'm writing. Now compare that side by side with 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. A very similar device. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Again, it's a purpose statement. I'm writing this to you for a purpose, with an aim. First in his gospel that you might believe, and then in his letter that believing you might know. So it's kind of a, a perfect two-volume set, right? 
a perfect two-volume set. By the way, in 1 John 5, 13, when John says, I'm writing that you might know, he means what he says. Okay? He doesn't mean here, I'm writing so that you may come to know, or eventually figure it out, or eventually, whoa, arrive at heaven. Sweet. John says, I'm writing these things to you in the present, that you might know in the present. Consider the words of John Stott. He puts it this way, that you may know in the Greek means both in word and tense, not that they may gradually grow in assurance, but that they may possess here and now a present certainty of the life they have received in Christ. He wants you to know. My friends, and this is phenomenal. It's phenomenal for your life. So in this letter, you can see in verse 13, John has been building to this climactic phrase. He's been building to this moment in which he would say, I've written all of this. Guys, I've written all of this that you might have this kind of security, that you might know. So let's dig into that for a moment. Let's ask the all-important question, what things, John, did you write? What things build to this moment in which he can say this with a straight face? You can know. So what has he written? In a phrase, I would say it this way. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. The real Jesus makes a real difference. This is what John has said, I think, in summary, that builds this crescendo of you can know that you're his. You can know that you have eternal life. The real Jesus makes a real difference. The real Jesus, as opposed to the fake one that you've been sold by the shady salesmen. The shady salesmen, the false teachers who have perpetuated a false doctrine about who Jesus is. John has set out to say, no, no, no. Jesus that I presented to you in the gospel is the same Jesus. He is indeed the Messiah. And in fact, I want to affirm it for you again. So throughout the letter of 1 John, he repeatedly points us to accurate teaching or true doctrine about who Jesus really was and is. He affirms for us, and we'll look at it, he affirms for us that Jesus was simultaneously fully God and fully man. He was God in the flesh. He is the Messiah. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the Son of God. You can look to him. He is the Savior of the world. Now, in every chapter, John points to this. Every chapter of this letter. So I want you to see it for yourself, okay? Be nimble with your fingers for a moment. All right, pull out your Bible. I trust that it's cracked open. Go back with me to 1 John chapter 1. I just want us to glance at it in every chapter. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Again, this is the real Jesus. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, what is John talking about? Or better yet, who is John talking about? Verse 2, the life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. 
that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and who? And with his Son, Jesus Christ. Our fellowship is with the life, the eternal life that was made manifest to us. He was fully man. We were able to see him, touch him, hear him. He actually lived here. He slept. He got tired. He ate. He got hungry. We saw it all, John is saying. We touched him, the word of life. That was and is eternal. He was with the Father and manifest now among us. This is the real Jesus. Amen? This is the real Jesus. Verse 7. This would be what John affirms here that Jesus did. Jesus in an actual body bled out. He says the blood of Jesus' his son cleanses us from all sin. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, he says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus, who is the Christ, is also righteous. And he is our advocate. He is our divine defense attorney. He's our representative before the Father. So verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the real Jesus. Amen? Verses 22 and 23 of chapter 2. Who is the liar, John says, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Don't kid yourself, John says. I'm talking about the real Jesus. The one who is with the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father. Also, this is the real Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, the Father's Son, Jesus Christ, the real Jesus. Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. This perhaps is the most explicit reference to the false teachers. He says, chapter 4 and verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. What is John doing? He's pointing to the real Jesus. Check out verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. He's making it clear. Chapter 5 and verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the real Jesus, my friends. So you can see in every chapter, he's pointing to this. Now, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly with regard to the false teachers, but saying the real Jesus is fully God and fully man. He really did come here in a body and he really did pay the price for our sin. He really was the second Adam, the man who's also God showing us how to live perfectly. He fulfilled the law in every way. He didn't deserve to die. And in fact, his life wasn't taken from him. He willingly laid it down as a sacrifice so that you and I could be free, 
so that you and I could be forgiven. Jesus went to the cross and there he bled out as the payment for our sin. This is the real Jesus. And understand, even as I articulate that with regard to the true gospel, that Jesus Christ was under attack. Christology was under attack in John's day. And so John writes to affirm his people, to affirm his people and what they believe about true doctrine, true Christology. This is the real Jesus. And by the way, without the real Jesus, we do not have Christianity. This is why this is crucial. My friends, without the real Jesus, we do not have security. Talk more about that in a moment. And so John says, unapologetically, you must know. You must know. You must cling to the true Christ. I love how Herman Bovink puts it when he says it this way. Jesus Christ is Christianity itself. He stands not outside of it, but in its center. Without his name, person, and work, there is no Christianity left. In a word, Christ does not point out the way to salvation. He is the way itself. Praise God for that. So, John points us to the real Jesus who makes a real difference. The real Jesus who makes a real difference in our lives. So, you've noted as we've journeyed through this letter how John has provided for us tests whereby we can evaluate. Have I really come to know him? Have I really encountered the real Jesus? Tests predominantly underneath the headings of light and love. Holiness towards God, a desire in our lives to follow him, not perfectly, okay? Not perfection, but direction. We are following after God because the real Jesus has impacted us. He has filled us with his spirit and changed our perspective on the word of God, changed our perspective on life. But then moreover, it has a horizontal effect. Christ, the real Jesus, has impacted the way I see my brothers and sisters, the way I desire to interact with my brothers and sisters. Jesus draws me out of myself to love one another, to love my brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, we've already seen the real Jesus in 1 John. Let's see these tests as well. Okay? Be nimble. Fingers be nimble. Be quick. First of all, light. Chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. I think it's so good for us just to see this with our own eyes. And by this, John says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. The love of God has been brought to completion in their heart by this. We may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought, him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You can see here John's point. When the real Jesus is encountered, it brings about change. Change in one's life. There is a desire now to follow the commands of God. Later you find that John will say the commandments are not a burden. It's not a problem. Because I know who my father is. I want to know his word. I want to follow in his way. Chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. Check it out. Chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. 
No one, John says, who abides in him, who is abiding with God, keeps on sinning. Now, again, notice here in this language the element of habit, the element of this is perpetual, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. It's like if your life has shown no change, then can you really say that you've encountered him, the real Jesus? Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning. I might say this, but he he cannot just keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So you see the impact vertically that the real Jesus makes. When someone encounters the real Jesus, it brings about real change vertically before their heart in God. But moreover, it impacts the horizontal. It changes my perspective about my brothers and sisters. God fills me with a supernatural love for my siblings, my brothers and sisters, the fellow saints in the beloved. Check it out in your text, verse 14 of chapter 3. By the way, you already saw it there at the end of chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 10. But now he continues, verse 14. We know... Again, there's this language of certainty that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Now, verse 7 of chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Pretty clear, isn't it? John is straight with us. And as I said a moment ago, this is all born of the Spirit. And this is what he says in verse 13 of this same chapter. As he continues with this uh, test of love, that God has illumined our heart with love, It is born of the Spirit, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And it testifies with us. So, my friends, you can see here, the real Jesus, the real Jesus brings about real change. The real uh, Jesus makes a real difference in someone's life. So, all that to say to those who may have questions, In this moment, when John is writing, first century, to those who may have questioned, am I really in? Am I really in? Am I one of those that's with God or not? John hands them this letter. And just imagine receiving this. Now, one of the benefits of going verse by verse through a particular passage of scripture or a particular book of the Bible is that we, we have this context now, right? This context that we've just walked through. But 
Another piece of the context that we found in chapter 2 was that there was this moment for the people of God in the first century, there was this moment in which a group of people led by a false teacher went out from among them. So just imagine being one of those people amongst a community of faith. And one of the teachers, one of the teachers in this community of faith begins to stand and teach something dynamically different from the apostles. Imagine this. This is a new spin, if you will. They didn't present it as a spin, but rather a new teaching on the doctrine of Christ. A new um, experience of Christianity. We've talked about how they denied the incarnation of Christ. They denied that Jesus of Nazareth was actually God in the flesh. They also denied this aspect of the real Jesus making a real difference in one's life, and they preferred rather a version of Christianity that was just all about an experience, right? an experience of being enlightened. Right? We have a new, fresh experience of the Holy Spirit. Now, think about this. Imagine that someone begins to teach this, and some, in our number, some rise to lead with him. To those that are left, John says, I'm guessing that some of you are wondering, are, are we the real deal? Or are they? You guys with me? Is it us, or is it them? Like, they seem to be having a pretty good old time over there. Do they have the real thing? Or do we? Now imagine, in that context, getting this letter. Isn't this great? Imagine getting this letter, whereby the Apostle John says, no, this, this is consistent. This understanding of Jesus is consistent with everything that we saw and heard. Everything. You've met the real Jesus. By the way, He's made a real difference in your life. Don't you know that? Don't you know how, how Christ has changed your heart? And as they hear these words, what's going on for them? Brothers and sisters, what's going on in their hearts is a chance. I do know we haven't missed the boat. We do have the real Holy Spirit. We are following the real Christ. And thus, John provides this letter to say, in essence, that simple faith in the real Jesus that has made a real difference provides real assurance. Provides real assurance. You can know that you are in. Now, having said all of that, let me ask you, what should we take away from this in our day? What should we take away from this reality in 1 John 5, 13? Why is it so significant? Why is this such a standout verse speaking on behalf of a whole letter? Well, I just want to give you three quick things that I trust will be an encouragement to your heart and life. Number one, it's so significant for us today because of what it speaks about, the gospel because of what it speaks about the gospel, the reason, my friends, that you can know, the reason you can be sure that you are in Christ and that you have a home in heaven is not rooted in your performance. 
Rather, it's rooted in Christ and what he has done for you. And you see that in 1 John 5, 13. Look at it. He says, I've written to you who what? Who believe. I've written to you who believe that you may know. You can know that you are a Christian. You can know that you have an eternal home in heaven because it's grace. Because it's been given to you. It's not something that you are earning or in the process of compiling enough merit for. That's the reason why you can know. Because you are saved by grace through faith alone. Period. Amen? Amen. This is huge for us. This speaks truth to us about the gospel. So what John is doing when he says, I've written to you who believe is he's anchoring what he's going to say about security in faith. And this is how God has always rendered his redemptive plan. It's always been distributed by faith. So one of my favorite texts on this note is Romans 4 and 5, in which Paul develops his argument out of 1 through 3, where he affirms our sin and depravity and the fact that Jesus came to be the propitiation. He says, then it's applied by faith. Chapter 4, it's all about that. Okay? You don't believe me? Go read it this afternoon. You'll be blessed. It's all about faith. Okay? This is how God applies this salvation to us. It's by faith. It's always been by faith. Always will be by faith. And then he says this in chapter 5, verse 1. So good. Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, note the past tense. We have been justified by faith. We presently have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace, this place the state of grace in which we stand this is huge you see it here that paul is referencing a past moment in which god has declared us righteous we have been justified i.e the judge has already swung the gavel man it's already been struck he's already ruled and he's ruled in your favor if you've come by faith clinging to Christ alone, clinging to his grace alone. The gavel's already been struck. If you've come by faith, you're already righteous. Positionally, you're already righteous. Man, these are great spots for amens. Hopefully they're going off in your heart. (laughs) So, thus you are perpetually innocent. Thus you can be secure. See that? This speaks resounding truth about the gospel. Thus, it's not presumptuous to say this. It's not presumptuous to talk about eternal security, which is one of the attacks on this doctrine. Some will argue it's presumptuous, it's arrogant to talk about eternal security, to say, I am on my way to heaven. That's a presumptuous thing. Is it? Think about it. I've spent a lot of time in Romania. Many of you know that. And one of the things that I encounter every time that I go in villages around Romania is 
the predominant um, religion, the Greek Orthodox Church. And talking with person after person after person in these villages, when we talk about the doctrine of eternal security, it's a visceral reaction. It's an immediate denial that no one can know. That's what they will say. No one can know that. It's presumptuous to say that. It would be arrogant to say that. And thus, my friends, the experience of their faith is one that is dominated by mourning and sorrow. It's not a joy-filled place most of the time, my friends, because they have no confident hope, no confident expectation. Rather, here's their rendition of it. Many will tell me in the country of Romania that essentially what their hope is is this, that they will be a good enough citizen in this particular village, a good enough citizen to acquire enough merit with the local priest that when they die, he will pray for them. He will passionately pray for them that they might make their way eventually to heaven. Could I ask you a question? Which is more presumptuous? You and I saying, we are totally sinful, cannot save ourselves, no hope of salvation. Therefore, we abandon all hope that we will earn it to cling to Christ alone because he did it all for us and is willing to give it to us as a gift. That, or that I might be good enough to win the affection of a priest who may pray for me fervently enough that I might eventually make my way to heaven. Which of the two is more in the realm of presumption? At the end of the, the, end of the day, it really doesn't matter, does it? What matters is what the Bible actually says. And Romans 5 is clear, is it not? Romans 5 is clear, and I would argue that this, this understanding that we are saved by grace through faith alone, this is true humility. This is God with his gospel humbling us to the core. For all of us to recognize there's nothing I can do. Nothing I can do to earn my way to God. This was at the heart of the Reformation. This is, some people will say, Reformation Day, okay? Reformation Sunday, the day in which Luther nailed those theses on the door. This was at the heart of the whole picture, right? And Catholic dogma responded adamantly to the Reformers about this doctrine in particular. They say, you cannot know. You absolutely cannot know, and why? Because it was linked to their description of justification. Their description of justification was that it was a process, more similar to our understanding of sanctification. Thus, if someone is sanctified and sanctified and sanctified, maybe there will be eventually grounds for justification. Thus, justification was not simple. Not simple, as in Romans 5.1. We've been declared righteous by God on the basis of faith. We've entered into this place of grace whereby we stand. It wasn't, it wasn't that at all. But rather, it was a process, a very fluid thing. Thus, eternal security, it's nebulous. It's evasive. It's slippery. My friends, 1 John 5.13 speaks a mighty truth Amen. about the gospel. 
God wants us to know. He has declared that we can know. Why? Why? Because it's based on the finished work of Christ. Not our effort. Amen? Amen. Not our effort. With regard to presumption, I love what John Stott says. When he said, pay attention to it. If God's revealed purpose is that we should know, 1 John 5, 13, presumptuousness lies in doubting his word, not in trusting it. I would commend that to you. 1 John 5, 13 has a word to say about the gospel. Number two, it has a word to say to our need. This is huge for us with regard to what it speaks to our need. God knows that you and I all have a great need for security. Not only does this mark us with hope and joy, but I think more to the point here, it buoys us when the questions come. When doubts arrive, when doubts mount in our hearts and minds, when it's dark out there, we need an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Isn't that true? Fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. We need an anchor. We need an anchor. Think about moments of failure. I know we've all been there. Moments of failure. Satan may try to put you on the stand. The accuser of the brethren. Are you really a Christian? Can you really know it? We are all tempted to put ourselves on the stand. As if God has not already ruled, my friends. As if the gavel has not already been swung. We put ourselves on the stand and we begin to doubt. Am I really a Christian? And it's anchored in our performance. It's anchored in what we've done and what we feel like we failed to do. I love the song before the throne of God. And the writer says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, the righteous, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Amen? I love what uh, Robert Murray McShane said when he put it this way. For every look at ourself, take ten looks at Christ. 1 John 5, 13 speaks to us in moments of failure. What about in moments or seasons of dryness? Where it just feels like there's nothing going on in our soul. You know what I'm talking about? Seasons of dryness. 1 John 5.13 speaks to us there. What about in moments of fear? When the voices in our head bring about the worst case scenarios over and over again. And they reverberate in our minds and begin to seep into our hearts in terms of fear and worry and dread. Causing us to shrink away from the gospel. 1 John 5.13 speaks a word there. God wants you to know. 
that you are in him? What about in moments of disappointment? Perhaps we are disenchanted with other Christians, disappointed in other Christians, and it's causing us to doubt our Father, causing us to doubt even our own standing before him. What about disappointment in life? Perhaps when it seems like we're not getting the answers to the prayers we have desperately prayed. We feel that like we've prayed with, with everything we've had, with faith. It seems to align with God's will. Why hasn't he worked? 1 John 5.13 has a word to speak there. God wants you to know. In all of these moments and seasons of doubt and worry and fear and dread and failure, he wants to reassure your heart, your mind, your mind. He wants us to hear that trustworthy voice, your mind. It speaks to us a word in this moment of doubt. So you don't have to ever have to worry about getting back in. My friends, if you're in Christ, you're already in. Amen? You're already in. Lastly, what it speaks about God. There's some overlap here. But with this, I want to conclude. God wants you to know that you are secure in Him, that your home, your eternal destiny is secure in Him because He's a good Father. He is a good Father. Every good parent wants their kids to know that they love them. Isn't that true? Parents don't always do it the same way, articulate it the same way, but every good parent wants their kids to know that they love them. And every child needs to know that. Every child needs to hear that their parents, their mom, their dad, they love them. They need that. It's, it's crucial for their soul. It's crucial for their, for their development. And so kids need to hear it. And good parents Seek to do it. And our Heavenly Father is no different. My friends, our Heavenly Father wants you to know. He wants you to know. He wants you to be secure in Him. He doesn't dangle the carrot. He wants you to have it. Isn't He good, my friends? Isn't He good? Recently I was with a friend out of town and... We were talking about life, and at one point in time, he began to talk about a crucial point in his life. As an adult, had kids of his own, in which his dad handed him a manila envelope, this big yellow envelope, and he just said, take it, go home, and open it. And my friend went home and opened it, and when he did, he began to see like newspaper clippings of his kid. Handwritten stat sheets from old baseball games, right? Basketball games. Clips from a yearbook. Handwritten notes that he'd never given his son, but that he'd kept all those years. And when this friend was telling me about this, 
he broke down and started weeping, started crying right there. Why? Reflection. My dad loves me. My dad loves me. My friends, when Satan tempts us to despair, when life hits us from every side, God wants us to know that he's handing us this letter in which we might say, God loves me. He sent his son to pay the price for my sin that I might cling to him in faith and know. Not just believe, but also know that I'm in him, that he is mine. What a good God. Amen? Amen. What a good God. So John writes that we might believe and in believing that we might know. God, thank you so much for your grace, your kindness. You did not have to come after us, but you did. Lord Jesus, you did not have to pay the ultimate price, but you did. You didn't have to give us this gift, but you did. And you didn't have to tell us that you want us to know, but you did. Thank you. I pray that you would help us to believe this and help us to relish this in our lives.